Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Hello and welcome to a special episode of 10 American Presidents. I'm Royful Brown, the uh, producer of the series. Now, I haven't done an awful lot of podcasts this year, but one thing I have done is I've written a chapter on President Martin Van Buren for Ian Dale's book, The Presidents, which is actually out now. Um, What you're going to hear in this episode is... Uh, an excerpt of uh, my chapter, a rather large excerpt, which is uh, narrated by Ian Dale. And also what you're going to hear at the start is my interview with Ian on his show, on his podcast, talking about Martin Van Buren and his legacy. So this is somewhat of a a Christmas festive treat for you, considering um, you've had very meager pickings from me in 2021 so first is my interview with ian dale it's just an excerpt and then you have another excerpt of a reading from the book the president by ian dale i suggest uh, you go out uh, to all good bookshops and go and purchase a, a copy now 
Hello and welcome to the President's and Prime Minister's podcast with me, Ian Dale. This podcast series accompanies my two books, The President's and the Prime Minister's. And each week you'll hear about a different American president or British Prime Minister. Well, today we're going to talk to the presenter of the Mid-Atlantic podcast, Royfield Brown, about the life and presidency of Martin Van Buren, who served as president from 1837 to 1841. Royfield, good to have you on the podcast. What made you choose Martin Van Buren as the president you wanted to uh, write about? Because not an obvious choice in some ways. He's not an obvious choice, but I love Van Buren because he not only frames the modern American political system, but also he um, kind of points at an alternative history of America because he's the only American president who didn't speak English as the first language. So he spoke Dutch, who were the first inhabitants actually of New Amsterdam. New York, you know, and the kind of the Dutch history in um, in America is kind of, it's writ large, but we kind of forget about it. So the two Roosevelt, Roosevelt is a Dutch surname, um, and then the Vanderbilts. And, and we know these as American names, American um, families, mm. but they were Dutch, not English. So an alternative history, and maybe the, it would be in the United States of, of America, but we've been saying it in Dutch, not English. I always wanted to learn Dutch, but I, even I can't think what the United States of America would, would be in Dutch just as well, probably. So, who was Martin Van Buren? Where did he come from? Where was he born? What was his education like? Well, another little thing about Martin Van Buren is the expression OK. Now, there's a certain amount of um, dispute about it, but OK, we think, comes from Old Kinderhook, which is the uh, presidential campaign which he loses in 1840. So, he's from a little town called Kinderhook. So, if you were OK, you for Old Kinderhook, which is Van Buren. So Kinderhook is this town in New York State, uh, not too far away from from New York City. And quite simply, he had a relatively... You you read all the books and you read the essays and he has this modest upbringing. But in the great scheme of things, it was a little bit more than just modest. His father was a tavern owner who'd fought in the American Revolutionary War. And he, he could send his son off to school then also then off to well he, he becomes a lawyer but he's not he went, went went to lawyer school or anything like that back then um you worked with an, under another lawyer you literally swept their floors and then that way then in the evenings you read their books and then you became a lawyer so he had by american standards back then an average a slightly upper average um kind of upbringing but he he wasn't you know a washington or a jefferson he was not landed gentry at all he's a relatively uh uh, relatively normal and that's kind of one of the um great things about him is that he could rise up from being literally nobody a bit like jackson beforehand and become you know the head of the united states that's quite interesting because there was quite a few presidents around that time who weren't the founding fathers who weren't the signatories on the declaration of independence it was sort of a new generation was sweeping in well he's also the first american president who wasn't a british citizen as well so or subject sorry so um so yeah he's definitely of this new phase of american leaders who can't remember the revolutionary war you know he 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 doesn't know of of another world other than an, an independent united states so after school, he started practice as a lawyer. Was he very successful? He was. And he cuts a bit of a dash. And what kind of helps inform his politics is the fact that he becomes um, a champion of the common man. 
So that then goes to inform his politics going forward. He's not a grandee. As I said, he's not part of the planter class. You know, he's not from Virginia, where, you know, Jefferson and Washington mm. are from. He's from New York State. And um, he's from this bit of America, which sees itself as very meritocratic. But he kind of sees that um, there are landed interests and moneyed interests, and he's very much for the common man. So he always fights against uh, those interests and for uh, the regular Joe. Before we start talking about his political career, I, I think it's important at this stage for um, people who don't know about the all the sort of party machinations in the 1820s and 1830s to just explain how the American parties grew up, really, because there, there weren't the Democrats and the Republicans back in the mm-hmm. late late 18th century, early part of the 19th century. J- just sort of give us a... a, a, a crash course in, in how the American parties really formed in, in this period? Well, the one of the things which the founding fathers um, kind of have in mind is they don't want their, part, their politics to be riven by partisan sectionalism. Yeah. They don't. So Washington um, kind of in his last inaugural address, basically rails against uh, the partisan divide. So in the presidency of Washington, at least in the first term, there are no political parties. It's all good Americans together. By the time of the um, presidency of Adams, you have the Federalists who believe in a bigger government and a national bank, of which Hamilton, the musical, he's very much the archetype of uh, the Federalist Party. And then you have the Democratic... Which I disgracefully still haven't seen, but... Uh... It's rather good. <laughs> so I'm told. Sorry, in San Francisco. Um, and then you have the Democratic Republicans who their kind of figurehead is Jefferson, who believe that... Um, the unit of govern- governance should be as small as possible. And this is all about, um, you, the individual exercising your own free right to do kind of whatever. That's the easiest way to divide the two. By the time you get to the 1810s, the Federalists are basically a busted flush. So America goes into this weird period from the 1810s to 18 the late 1820s where there's only really one political party but that's going to really massively inform the american political system as we have it today because the democratic republicans um are riven by factions it's really a period where american politics is really driven by personality the 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 difference between let's say uh, clay or adams or um Jackson is actually really quite minuscule, but it's all about where you're actually from in the United States. Are you a northerner? You're a southerner? Are you from one of the middle states? Or um, your personality, and that's that really kind of gets to inform that kind of period of American politics. Now. Van Buren believed in small national government, as you said, and, and that was another another uh, split in American politics, wasn't it? Almost throughout the 19th century, what well, still is to a certain extent, isn't it? Absolutely. That, between the power of the federal government and the power of the states. So he allied himself with the Democratic Republicans, and that was what really got him into national politics, wasn't it? He um, is really, before he goes into national politics, he's incredibly uh, powerful in state politics in New York. And he kind of rails against other Democratic Republicans who don't, he, who sees as not being as uh, pure to that small government ideal. And he forms a faction called the Bush Tales. And really what he learns there is party discipline. Um, 
remember his father actually owned a tavern and that's really important in understanding his story because the taverns were the talk show radios of their time that's where you went to discuss politics people there was a surprising amount of literacy in the early 19th century in america but where you went to discuss ideas was in the pub in the tavern so he was listening to all this stuff growing up and he was the lbc listener of his day absolutely <laughs> he was that annoying call you know caller yeah. and um it's martin from kinderhook <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to say martin <laughs> well yeah. so uh yeah so, so and, and through that he kind of learns um how to kind of like twist arms how to persuade political insiders he takes that into state politics in new york and then in this weird period of american history where there are no real relative left and relative right there's only one political party he realizes that actually what's needed is discipline because otherwise you have chaos when it comes to elections because it's mm. it's it's sectional as opposed to political McDonald's have always done their little bit for young people. Like when they offered us apprenticeships and paid for our degrees. And now, it's time to put youth workers in their UK restaurants and communities. To mentor us and give career advice. And it's not just one or two youth workers either. It'll be a whole team of us, working across 1,300 restaurants. Add to that all the training McDonald's offer to over 92,000 young crew members. And well, that little bit doesn't feel so little anymore. McDonald's. Change a little, change a lot. So he ran for state senate in 1812 and won, and he ran a campaign, as you say, opposing the Bank of the United States, which was another bit, that was another fissure in American politics, really the first half of the 19th century. This is going to really come to bite him in the bum uh, by the time he actually becomes president, that... um, there's this fundamental divide, as you said, between between how people see this brand new country. It's an experiment. Um, and the fact that there is this central government, many uh, politicians see that as actually anti the very ethos of the state that um, to have control over fiscal uh, matters and he's really against that and it's going to be disastrous by the mid 1830s and let's talk about the the politics of new york at that time because again that that's that's something that really guided his own political career o- over this period um he was he had an interesting um feud i suppose you could call it with dewitt clinton was it DeWitt Clinton? I don't, when I was reading the audiobook, I wasn't sure about that. <laughs> this, um, and that's really what makes him a star, because he is somebody who's he's, he's able to marshal um, other people around him. DeWitt Winton is, uh, is, is much more powerful than mm. him, but he's, he's able to get this coalition to form the Bushtails and... The, the the fight between them lasts for like four years, but it then puts him on the national uh, on the on the national stage. And he was still very young at this stage. He, he's, he's very young, and he can basically then go straight in, into the Senate. You know, the, the, he's seen as the consummate political operator. He understands uh, many 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 of the rules of politics as we'd kind of understand them today, and and he and he builds this coalition. He has his support 
reporters put in key uh, places of, of the administration. You know, he's a political operator as we'd understand it today. And how did his career develop once he entered the US Senate? He moves very quickly uh, through uh, th- through the Senate. He realizes that um, there's there's an election in 1824, and um, that election literally is um, a dead heat between Quincy Adams and uh, between Jackson. And remember, this is a period where there are no political parties, only one, the Democratic Republicans. And he can see that this is destabilizing for um, for um, party discipline, that you don't have very clear messages. And all the region, all the four um, various candidates, they're all kind of regional. The, the one which has the widest kind of geographic spread is actually Jackson, who's the populist. He is the kind of fissure between the um, the founder class and the new self-made man is this wild-haired orator who um, m- pulls himself up by his bootstraps in the middle of nowhere America, becomes a millionaire, and is also um, a successful general. That's what gives him a platform in the 1812-1814 war where, unfortunately, he beat us Brits um, in the Battle of New Orleans. That's where he really gets his name. And he's a, a, utterly a man of the people. Cutting a long story short... Um, in terms of the Electoral College, he doesn't have enough votes. Initially, um, Van Buren doesn't support him, but then swings behind him and organises for him. What happens... What, what caused him to change his mind? Because he sees that um, he has the widest kind of geographical spread of support, not only in his um, home state of Tennessee, but in other bits of the United States, where the other candidates are much more regional. So he kind of swings behind him, organises for him, fundraises for him. Um, however, um, because no candidate gets a majority in the Electoral College, then goes to Congress for them to decide who's going to be the president. Congress has this corrupt bargain and they give it to Quincy Adams. And there's a, a big, massive uh, factional falling out between the Democratic Republicans. But they're all the same party. Martin Van Buren is then going to sit down and with actually a guy called Calhoun kind of work out how they can take the lessons which he's learnt in in New York politics, state politics, international politics. So by the time that the next election in 1828, there is party discipline, there is, um, and he understands that we there should be a, a party convention. There needs to be some way of um, the common man, but also the party machinery, um, anointing uh, a presidential candidate. So really, what? What gets birthed out of that corrupt bargain in the next four years is the modern American political system. Do you think that's his main legacy? Absolutely. And literally almost 200 years later, it's still there in place, at least in the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party, the Democratic Republicans of then is not the Democratic Party of now, even though there's a straight line between the two. The Republicans... Um, don't have a party machine anymore. The Democrats still do by the skin of their teeth. You know, Joe Biden was the establishment candidate and he's now the president. Donald Trump wasn't for the Republicans in the last election. You know, so he builds up. Um, he understands that uh, to have a clear set of principles, you have to have at least 
uh, one coalition between one factional interest and another, and then you enforce party discipline. So the messaging is really tight. You have a convention that then nominates somebody, which knocks out all the others. So it's, it's a very clear choice. And he actually kind of sees it as a way of actually uniting America. Conversely, by having two political parties and not one. You quote from a letter that Van Buren wrote to Thomas Ritchie in, in your essay, which is all around this subject. You call it one of the most far-sighted documents in American political history. Be- because he, he understands that to really to get politics done, it cannot be based around personality and sectional interest. There's a thing called, there's an incident called the nullification crisis, which happens in 1836 in uh, South Carolina. South Carolina almost secedes from from the United States. The United States, some 50 years after it was formed, was still kind of touch and go whether it would actually last as a unified um, nation. And kind of one of the things how people kind of addressed the United States back then was to call it these United States up until the point of the Civil War. Many Americans or most Americans saw themselves as belong to their state first and then America second. So having these um, regional um, presidential candidates, he saw as actually being a way of weakening the, the new republic. Remember, it's still new back then. You know, many of the politicians who are in power, though they're kind of fading could remember the, the War of Independence, the Revolutionary War, the British, the Redcoats. They could just about still remember it. It was still within living memory. And having, let's say, a senator who's pushing the uh, sectional interests of, let's say, the South or somebody from the Midwest is potentially going to be the end of, of the country. So he he very clearly said, we need Southern planters, you know, holders of slaves with northern republicans we need to be a party it's going to be one coalition and we have policies which they can both just about get behind and we help to unite the country and there's a national message so during the presidency of andrew jackson what happened to martin van buren um actually he comes over here it's it's quite interesting this this bit of his story i think yeah you know one of the things which he does he actually comes to britain you know he's the uh foreign secretary or the secretary of state sorry as the Americans would call it, we'd call it the, the Foreign Secretary. And uh, this is uh, the age just before the Telegraph. So um, one of the things which he had to do was get on a boat. It's a bit like Jefferson, who was the first uh, Secretary of State, had to, you know, he, he got on a boat and went to France. Oh, no, sorry, he's the ambassador to France, actually. Oh, anyway, you can leave that bit in. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, those, t- you know, he had to get on a boat and he came to Britain. And one of the things which he did... Um, did do was to there's a, a land dispute between us brits and them yanks uh, in maine so the northeastern state and um he kind of like sorts that out and he and he cuts a real kind of dash and a figure because he was always incredibly cur- courteous but also and, and he or, dressed well and that's where i was coming to he's always called a bit of a dandy mm. and this is a, it's kind of a, an interesting time where the the old kind of effect way of dressing from the late 19th century radically gets upturned by the French Revolution and a little bit by the American Revolution, but the French Revolution. 
But um, before we get to that kind of really somber Victorian way of dressing, where everybody just wore incredibly dark clothes or just black, you know, he still he still is a little splash of colour, and he always wore these kind of green suits with yellow shirts and crushed velvet, and you like yourself. <laughs> I look like a Victorian gentleman today, <laughs> um, and it's one of the things which you don't ever read when you read about Van Buren that he was somebody who um, was tr- he wasn't like an um, an Araviste. He wasn't, but there was a certain element of him. I think thinking that he's moving in circles which maybe he shouldn't have been or that you know he feels uh, he's and, and one of the ways in which he could make himself feel like he should be in the presence of let's say people with more money or uh, have a landed family name was to dress really well that, that's something which everybody always said about him how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank <laughs> you. 
So in terms of the, the Andrew Jackson years, he, he was a close ally of Jackson, but sort of he held various different positions in, in that period. Um, how did they, how did those various jobs that he had lead up to him becoming a candidate for president? Well, he becomes, um, so it's called the kitchen cabinet. And uh, Jackson basically comes to power and it can't be underestimated as to how much of a revolutionary change Jackson was. As I said, he's a self-made man. He's not one of these kind of founders or a son of a founder. He hasn't written the Declaration of Independence. In many ways, Andrew Jackson is the personification of the American dream. Born, born in the middle of nowhere, is an orphan at an early age, becomes a millionaire, um, fights for his country against those damn Brits, etc., etc., and then becomes becomes the president. When he comes to power, the people who gathers around him are his mates, basically, with the kind of exception, really, of Van Buren. Uh, and Van Buren is seen as the most able out of this kitchen cabinet. You know, he can get things done. He understands how Washington works. He understands politics in a way that other people just don't. And he's this shining star and he becomes a real confidant of Jackson. So Jackson is the mouthpiece, he's the populist. Jackson is the Trump of his day, wild haired and whatever. He's very, he has this real, very manicured kind of image. But his, um, his fixer is our man, Martin Van Buren, who actually gets things done. And you brought him in as vice president in his second term. Because um, he is the foreign secretary and the Senate uh, under Calhoun basically don't ratify him for for another term. This really upsets uh, Jackson and Jackson says, right, I'm do- going for you, Calhoun. He gets rid of Calhoun and then makes him his vice president when he runs again in 1832. And was that really essentially the the way that he, well, it was the way he became president in the end, wasn't it? Um, if he hadn't been vice president, maybe he wouldn't have succeeded. And yeah, but, but also remember, by this time, by 1828, we have the start of the Democratic Party as we kind of understand it. So he's building a machinery around him, a political machine around him, and there's a certain level of patronage. And um, he's got friends and allies. So one of the interesting things about uh, Van Buren is he loses, he's going to lose the election in 1840. He's going to run again in 1844. He's actually even going to go again in 1848 for another party. Um, and I don't think it's by accident that he can keep on running. He's got a lot of friends in high places and he's the consummate political um, insider. Tell us about the crisis with South Carolina because he played a key role in that. One of the one of the uh, things which um, differentiates the South from the middle and the the west and the north of the states is its attitude around tariffs not just slavery we think slavery but it's also tariffs and uh, as i mentioned before the idea of um states being more important and let's call it states rights is something which is much more important then than it than it is now so one of the things which the this new coalition of the Democratic Party is always kind of um, struggling with is the fact that Northern Democrats are kind of pro-tariffs, you know, putting a, a barrier around a state's industries to kind of protect their um, indigenous industries against, you know, imports kind of kind of coming in. Um, the, 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 the Southerners um, aren't, you know, aren't kind of up for this at all. And South Carolina 
almost secedes from the United States because of this. It's called the nullification crisis because they want to get rid of a set of tariffs. And it's it's Van Buren, who's this moderating voice in the government to say, look, we need to tread carefully here. He understands potentially that you could unravel the United States. And it's one of those things which... In the run-up to the Civil War, the nullification crisis is a bit of a precursor. It's that kind of like comet which happens, you know, some 20-odd years beforehand. But it shows you that um, there is this resentment in the South about too much government, about telling them what to do. And South Carolina, you know, there were many people that wanted South Carolina to leave the United States. And it's Van Buren who helps to calm things down, to have backroom deals and uh, to make sure that... uh, the, the experiment still continues. So the the convention took place in 1835. Van Buren was chosen. Um, how did the election go? What kind of campaign was it? It was in. You know what, Ian? I don't know an awful lot about that election. You know, you when when you when you study um, kind of old uh, Kinderhook, it's really the next one, which is the one where he's seen as being kind of lead and footed this Mm. is really a coronation there isn't really there is another political party but there isn't um there is one solidified force he's going up against numerous candidates he's backed by jackson that's the big thing Uh, andrew jackson is incredibly popular his uh, his tenure has been seen as a success then but immediately it's going to be um, ridden with uh, controversy as soon as um, Martin Van Buren becomes president. But this is like a coronation. You have one set of political operatives who know what they're doing because they have a party machine, they're, they're disciplined, and you have four or five, no, three other candidates, and they're all over the place. But that's going to change by the time of the next election. So in terms of when when he becomes president, um, what were the challenges facing him? What were the challenges facing America after this period of Andrew Jackson as president? Through the second part of the presidency of Jackson, um, there is uh, the winding up of the second national bank. And we know much more about economics than they ever did back then. They didn't understand uh, that um, a national bank is needed to be able, at least even if you think it shouldn't be that powerful, but in terms of when, when there is a crisis, to be able to move money around the economy, to shore it up. Um, that knowledge just wasn't there. This was a state stated principle that we don't need large institutions let alone financial ones o- over the economy so it's wound up and the day he becomes president there's a massive crash uh in the economy and uh brokerage houses just go bust people lose their farms and there isn't an instrument to be able to put money in the hands of whether it's small American institutions or into the into the pockets of Americans to keep the economy going. Um, that would have been the National Bank, which had just been wound up. So it's as, literally as soon as he starts, it's not his fault, but he is uh, very much the heir of the policies of Jackson. America goes through its deepest recession since the creation of the uh, United States. And he came under a lot of criticism in in that early period. I think you say in the essay he was nicknamed Van Ruin. Um, and you say whatever could go wrong in the next four years did. 
He he's really seen now as having um, no new ideas, but then also not even the charisma to project it to the public. Jackson was definitely a man of the people. Uh, Van Buren is a political insider who's somewhat dogmatic. And what you hear is that what a lot of people say about him is that when he was the president, he was still actually um, a Democratic Party operative. You know, he didn't really speak to the nation. Um, He didn't go out and and create new coalitions. Um, He was very dogmatic. And one of the ways in which he shows his dogma is not only being able to have no solutions to this massive economic crash, but in, in the Trail of Tears, all of the policies of the Jackson government, and one of them was the resettlement of the First Nations peoples. So in the um, early 19th century, you still have a lot of Native um, Americans, First Nations people, who live um, in the eastern states. Mm. And um, as, as part of, there's no other way of saying it, white supremacy, um, the American government says, uh, we need to push them to the other side of the Mississippi. And the and that was under Andrew Jackson. That was under Andrew Jackson, and he starts it, and it, and it's eighteen thirty, I believe, is the that that Indian Act. But it's called the Trail of Tears because he continues it uh, ruthlessly and does not apologise for it at all by the end of the 1830s. So, like, the Cherokee Indians are moved from the southeast and there are various kind of supposed inducements given to them. You know, if you you can become uh, citizens if you stay here. But these weren't the Plains Indians of popular kind of imagination. These were uh, native peoples who lived in towns, who had schools, had churches. A lot of them were, you know, were Christian by then. Um, but they're ruthlessly told um, you need to up sticks because they wanted their land and a quarter of these people died, you know, being marched by the American military over the other side of the uh, Mississippi to lands which were unproductive. And he, you know, executes and prosecutes that uh, policy. Was there anything in his four years as president that he could legitimately be proud of? He was even against uh, Texas joining the Union. So, like, he's on the wrong side of so many things whilst whilst he's president. So I'm sure there, there, <laughs> there must be something. But off the top of my head, uh, I can't think of one. And in terms of the history books, he goes down a trail of tears, um, not being able to do anything with this massive um, recession. So he, he lost in 1840 when he tried to be re-elected to the Whig, William Henry Harrison, and yet his party wanted him to stand again four years later. Yes, which I think goes to what I was saying before, is that he's a, a massive political insider. He knows how to get deals done. He knows people within the party machinery. Um, the kind of It's kind of called Tammany Hall, which doesn't really exist anymore. But that uh, the fact that every American city up until the 1960s, 70s, had this party machine... Uh, whether it be one guy, always a guy, who would um, know where you know where everyone was buried, uh, knew how which arms to twist to get certain policies uh, through, who you needed to promote, he knew that. 
state what you know the countrywide so because of that even though um he's run this disastrous presidency and the, the his party's actually lost power he he still runs uh, four years later and even for the free soil party um four years later so you've already made clear you think he belongs in the bottom bit of the presidential rankings. Interestingly, when C-SPAN did their latest rankings, um, he came in the mid-30s. I wouldn't say he's, he's bottom rung because he... But above he, above Hoover, above Harding? Well, Hoover, in popular imagination, is a total disaster because... For the simple reason that we actually have celluloid film of him, you know that that's really quite important as to how we our opinions are of presidents. You know, you can see him move. <laughs> and the 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 other shocking thing, I was just having this conversation with somebody this morning. So Hoover loses the presidency in nineteen thirty two, and then you have FDR. That's a complete revolutionary change in terms of the politics of America. Let alone you're going to have the the, first, the Second World War, the Korean War, um, and you're going to have um, you know civil rights uh, by the by the 1960s. Hoover actually turns up at the Republican uh, political convention in 1960 when Nixon um, is going to run against Kennedy. When I was doing my research for, for, for the podcast and I was watching this on YouTube, I was like. It feels like he feels like a character from another age completely because it's pre-television and stuff. But anyway, mm. Hoover, wrong play, you know, wrong man in, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, the, the politics of America economically was set fast by the time he was going to be president, you know. And then you have this um, laissez-faire political attitude that you shouldn't intervene too much with, with the economy. But the economy is going to crash anyway pre-Hoover, just that he just happened to be the man uh, when the economy crashed. But we're talking about Van Buren, sorry. Well, well we were. (laughs) (laughs) Martin Van Buren sits at a unique inflection point of American history. Shaping the modern American political system like no other historical figure, he pointed to an alternative future and authored a narrative for an America that could have been but never was. Born in Kinderhook, New York, to a Dutch-American family, the young Martin grew up speaking his mother tongue, as was customary among town inhabitants. Though the history of the first white people to successfully colonise New York made an indelible mark on the American landscape, it was in Van Buren's ascendance to the office of presidency that we were given glimpses of an altogether different America, one where English was not the official language of the new nation and where the United States was anything but united. Van Buren was the first president to have been born after the American Revolution. Being one of America's many 19th century mutton-chopped forgotten presidents, his lasting legacy of the creation of modern American political duopoly and the notion of national politics has remained largely unremembered. His legacy doesn't stop there, however. He also helped usher in the post-founder phase of the American presidency and was a key architect of the modern Democratic Party. It certainly is peculiar that a president whose contributions are so deeply woven into the fabric of American society should be so buried and forgotten. Kinderhook was a small town south of Albany, New York, where Dutch was exclusively spoken during the 18th century, despite the resident status as fifth-generation Americans of Dutch ancestry. 
Van Buren's father, Abraham, had fought in the Revolutionary War and served as a captain in the Albany County Militia's 7th Regiment. He was a man steeped in the politics and mission of the New Republic. Abraham, a Jeffersonian Republican, served as the town clerk and was a proprietor of a local tavern. At the times, taverns were very much at the centre of local politicking, with men entering the establishments to discuss the news of the day as much as they came to imbibe. It was in this environment that the young Martin was first educated in politics and began to understand what was required to acquire political power and wield influence. It was not until he was seven years old that Van Buren began speaking English. He attended a one-room schoolhouse in Kinderhook until the age of 14, marking the end of his formal education, as he did not go on to attend college. As a town clerk, Martin's father had extensive local contacts and was able to find his son a clerk position at a lawyer's office, where he would remain for seven years, running errands by day and studying the law by night. The hard work paid off. In 1803, at the age of 21, Martin gained admission to the New York State Bar. After a year in New York, Van Buren returned to Kinderhook to open up a law practice. It was during this time that flickers of his future politics could begin to be seen. The law practice was successful in boosting his reputation locally, where he championed the common people rather than the landed elite in property cases. His future populist politics of the late 1820s were clearly visible, alongside a desire for limited federal government and defence of individual liberties. In the early years of the 19th century, America's two political parties were the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists, each doggedly fighting to navigate the direction of the Republic's future. New York State was very much at the centre of the competing political factions. Van Buren, believing in small national government, aligned himself with the Democratic Republicans and was rewarded with a county official's post in 1808. At the time, his political allegiance was at best fluid, leaving his detractors to call him unprincipled as he shifted alliances while accruing local political power. With a reputation bolstered by a slew of courtroom victories, Van Buren ran for New York State Senate in 1812, beating the Federalist opponent. He ran a campaign opposing the Bank of the United States while supporting the impending war with Great Britain. This was his first electoral success and the beginning of an earnest paving of the road towards the White House. The War of 1812 against the British started badly for the Americans, resulting in vicious infighting among Democratic Republicans and the pushing of personal rivalries to the fore. Wanting party discipline, Van Buren formed his own faction within the party, known as the Bucktails, and committed himself to the defeat of the local Federalists. The Bucktails also railed against New York's most powerful politician and fellow Democrat-Republican, DeWitt Clinton, whom they believed was not strident enough in his defence of limited federal government. Such was the enmity between Van Buren and Clinton that their rivalry became the centrepiece of New York state politics during the 1810s. By the end of the decade, Van Buren, now 32, was appointed the state of New York's Attorney General. With the role as New York's leading Democrat-Republican now fully formed, his total control of the party during this time came to be known by his detractors as the Albany Regency. Politically powerful in New York State, 
Van Buren won election in the United States Senate in 1821. Upon arrival in Washington, D.C., he cultivated an air of sophistication and adopted the dress of a dandy to accompany his ready wit and unfailing tact. His warnings in the corridors of power about the lack of party discipline marked him out as an up-and-coming political force. With the end of the James Monroe administration in 1825 and the Federalists vanquished around the nation, politically the Democratic Republicans stood supreme across America. But the price they were to pay for this victory was the erosion of political party unity. This period saw key Federalist economic programs and institutions adopted by the Democratic Republicans. National tariffs came in 1816 and a second Bank of the United States was incorporated. These policies were anathema to many Democratic Republicans. Elements of the party, including Van Buren, found the developments worrisome. Van Buren also warned that such policies weakened the primacy of Southern slaveholding interests, enfeebling the National Party's political foundation. The creation of cabals was the most unintended consequence of wide single-party identification rather than fostering a political harmony among Democratic Republicans. On the eve of the 1824 election, there were at least three distinct factions in the party. The Adams-Clay Republicans, the Jacksonians and the Old Republicans, with each promoting their own candidate. In addition to factional candidates, the party was increasingly riven by regional concerns, with separate parts of the country backing different candidates for commander-in-chief. This made a true national consensus around a candidate almost impossible. In the election, Van Buren threw his support behind Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford of Georgia, a man of impeccable Jeffersonian credentials. Secretary of State John Quincy Adams dominated the vote in New England and won some support elsewhere. Clay dominated in his home state of Kentucky and won majorities in two neighbouring states. Crawford won the Virginia vote and did well in neighbouring North Carolina. General Andrew Jackson won in Tennessee, his home state, and in Pennsylvania. Of all the candidates, Jackson had the broadest geographical support. The two candidates with the most votes in the election, Jackson and Adams, both fell short of the Electoral College votes needed to claim the presidency. The rules of the Constitution mandated that the presidency be decided in the House of Representatives, where the fourth-placed finisher, Senator Henry Clay, threw his votes to Adams, who was then crowned victor. The supporters of Jackson were outraged, believing a corrupt bargain had been hatched between Adams and Clay, which had cost their man the White House. They, along with Van Buren, vowed to win back the White House in 1828. Van Buren believed that Adams was a secret Federalist, pointing to the new president's intention to strengthen the federal government's role in economic development as a prime example. He brought together the factions of the Democratic-Republicans hostile to Adams under Jackson's standard. The Jackson-Van Buren coalition was formed, with the populist Jackson promising a return to smaller federal government and a protection of state rights. In 1827, in the run-up to the 1828 election, Van Buren wrote to Virginia newspaper editor Thomas Ritchie, a Jeffersonian political leader in the state. Van Buren argued that the time had come for South Carolinian John C. Calhoun's idea of a national nominating convention to choose a presidential candidate before the 1828 election.
The idea of a convention would be a key milestone towards the formation of a new political party and would put an end to the political regionalism that had marked the 1824 election. Van Buren thought a party convention would help focus the opposition to the incumbent president and solidify politics around principles rather than personal coteries and local interests. Lastly, he opined that the divide between the northern and southern states could be healed by creating a national political coalition, something that a convention would aim to create. Though a supporter of Jackson, Van Buren thought that a congressional caucus or general convention would help rein him in were he to become president. Van Buren worried that Jackson's personal popularity meant that he might govern with little thought of the Democratic-Republican Party or party policy in general, so a convention would be a prudent way to keep him on message. In the letter to Thomas Ritchie, Buren stated this, I have long been satisfied that we can only get rid of the present and restore a better state of things by combining General Jackson's personal popularity with the portion of old party feeling yet remaining. The sentiment is spreading and would of itself be sufficient to nominate him at the convention. The call of such a convention, its exclusive Republican character and the refusal of Mr Adams and his friends to become party to it, would draw new the old party lines, and the subsequent contest would re-establish them. State nomination alone would fall far short of that object. Van Buren's letter to Ritchie was one of the most far-sighted documents in American political history. It set in place an American political system that still stands today. Forming a national party system was needed to stop the fictionalisation of American politics. Van Buren united the planters of the South and the Republicans of the North around a united political identity. Van Buren saw the 1828 election as an opportunity to restore the party to its first principles of limited federal government. If General Jackson will put his election on old party grounds, preserve the old systems, avoid, if not condemn, the practices of the last campaign, he said we can, by adding his personal popularity to the yet remaining force of old party feeling, not only succeed in electing him, but our success, when achieved, will be worth something. By the start of 1828, Van Buren had created his campaign to put Jackson in the White House. It was customary at the time for actual candidates not to go on the stump, leaving Van Buren in the position of chief fundraiser, strategist and political mouthpiece for Jackson. With some states expanding their franchise, there were new voters to win. With his large parades, rallies and fiery speeches, Van Buren targeted first-time voters, who he saw as vital to obtain the presidency. Van Buren's most difficult challenge during the campaign was persuading the candidate to suffer in dignified silence as the Adams camp levelled virulent attacks on Jackson's wife's character. His wife was called an adulteress and a bigamist, much to Jackson's distress and anger. While keeping Jackson's temper in check was one problem, another was the protectionism growing strong in the West and Northeast. Van Buren had to be mindful of the Southern planters' more free-trade leanings if his candidate was to triumph in the election. Courting both camps, he kept his coalition together through the 1828 tariff, known in the South as the Tariff of Abominations. This kept Westerners on his side, where they might have voted for the sitting president while kicking the issue down the road for Southerners. 
During the campaign, Van Buren was elected governor of his home state of New York, a position he had sought in order to improve Jackson's chances of winning the state in the election and securing its electoral college votes. The 1828 United States presidential election was held from the 31st of October to the 2nd of December. Jackson's victory over Adams is widely heralded as a triumph of the common man. Significantly, it also started a newly reformed Democratic-Republican Party that gave birth to the modern Democratic Party. With nearly all white men eligible to vote, 9.5% of the nation cast a vote, compared with only 3.4% in 1824. Jackson won the Electoral College vote 178 to 83. With 20 electoral votes for Jackson secured in New York State, Van Buren resigned from the governorship and joined the Jackson administration as Secretary of State. In Jackson's cabinet, Van Buren shone as the most capable member among a sea of men who were personal friends of Jackson. During his tenure as Secretary of State, he became one of the president's most trusted confidants and an advisor who Jackson knew he could trust, in contrast to hangers-on who were dubbed the kitchen cabinet. Jackson came to office to entrench white interests, and key to this goal was the Indian Removal Act of 1830. This act gave the president power to negotiate removal treaties with Indian tribes living east of the Mississippi. The Indians were to give up their ancient land, leaving their schools and community for the promise of land to the west. The prize of citizenship was offered to those who wanted to stay. The act was to lead to the Trail of Tears, an act of calculated genocide and a grave stain on the young republic. However, it was President Van Buren who most brutally enforced Jackson's Indian Removal Act, not the populist president. In his new role as ambassador to the United Kingdom, Van Buren sailed for England in 1832. Always well-mannered, he was popular in London's diplomatic circles, the ending of the border dispute in Maine with Britain being one of his accomplishments while abroad. In late February 1832, the Senate rejected Van Buren's nomination to continue as UK ambassador, with Vice President John C. Calhoun casting the deciding vote. This angered Jackson, but after reflection, Calhoun's act gave him ample reason to remove him from the ticket in the coming presidential election. Jackson decided that his adviser Van Buren was to be his next vice president, saying that the people in mass would take you up and elect you vice president. After returning to the US political fray in July 1832, Jackson needed Van Buren's help in drafting the president's message to Congress explaining his proposed veto to the recharter of the Second Bank of the United States. Getting rid of the bank was an article of faith to both Jackson and Van Buren. The lack of a national bank was to have grave consequences for the country later in the decade, and Van Buren's impotence during the forthcoming Depression was to be one of the many blemishes on his presidency. Hello, Royfield here, season's greetings, and you all have my abject apologies that I've managed to put out barely a podcast this year in 2021. 
I have um, started working extensively uh, this year. Not only do I now teach at the University of California, Berkeley, I teach the business of podcasting, but I've also now have got the gig of being executive producer for OSET, doing a collection of podcasts around American democracy. And this has meant that I've been incredibly busy. However, um, there is no excuse um, in uh, this year I should have been able to at least get out three or four podcasts. So a little bit of an excuse, a little bit of a reason as to why uh, things have been so threadbare on 10 American presidents. And to that note, I have to say hi to Ken Rowe and to David Gould, who uh, posted a message just yesterday on on the 10 American Presidents Facebook group. Uh, G'day, Royfield. I've been listening to your listen to you since the first episode and going through the first couple of podcasts again are you planning to do any more episodes on the actual presidents yes i am bear with me it will actually happen we are halfway through reagan but i did say that about 10 months ago anyway um ken bear with me it will happen if you want to catch up with some of the other things that I do, I also do a podcast called uh, Mid-Atlantic, which looks at contemporary US and UK politics compared and contrasted. And I do a little show called Map Corner, which looks at uh, maps and mapping and uh, is much more fun than it sounds. And uh, lastly, also do a podcast called Intelligent Speech, uh, where I just interview, interview interesting people about random topics. So if you want more Royal Brown content, um, Map Corner, Mid-Atlantic and Intelligent Speech are good places to go. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.